From the ED ECMO studios in San Diego, California, this is the ED ECMO podcast. Okay, whether you are an EMT, nurse, emergency doctor, or intensivist, or better yet, an ED intensivist, or CT surgeon, or just an enthusiast of resuscitation, this podcast is dedicated to the crashing patient who is just too young to die. Not always right, but rarely in doubt, I'm Joe Belezzo. And I'm Zach Shiner. And this is the ED ECMO Podcast. On today's episode, we are very proud to have a special guest. We are hosting Deidre Murphy. Now, Deidre is the Deputy Director of the ICU and the Head of Cardiothoracic ICU at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. And as a lot of you know, the Alfred is gaining a lot of notoriety these days for the stuff they're doing in both hypothermia in the past and now with ECMO and the becoming famous... Cheer trial. Uh, just a couple of, uh, of housekeeping things we need to take care of. First, Zach, coming up, where are we going next week? We are going to Cuba. Cuba. The anti-ECMO Weingart, Belezo, and I, and we are going to be talking about everything that is not advanced. Not advanced. <laughs> How to do a resuscitation with limited resources. From the social media world, Weingart Squadron, Matt and Mike from the Ultrasound Podcast, Billy Mallon, Joe Lex, Jerry Hoffman and many, many more. And then after that, next month, what's next month, Zach? We've got Essentials. Yeah, this time at Essentials, we're not talking ECMO. Nope. Endovascular resuscitation, we'll do a little shout-out, but mostly we're talking about advanced resuscitation techniques and how we think we can improve outcomes. All right. Today, on the line, we have Deidre Murphy. Deidre, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. Listen, Zach and I talk a lot about putting patients on ECMO. We're talking all the time about indications and contraindications and complications and how to get the pump up and running, when to do that, when to think about that, the logistics of putting somebody on pump. That is probably the easy part. The hard part is what Deidre has to deal with on a daily basis, which is dealing with the aftermath of the destruction that Zach and I create. (laughs) So... Deidre, if you could first um, maybe describe what you do in your role there at the Alfred and um, your interest in ECMO. Oh, sure. Um, well, I guess I've been interested in ECMO for as long as I've been at the Alfred, which is over 13 years. And um, our, our ECMO sort of runs per year are increasing each year, uh, particularly with um, ECMO CPR, which is uh, up to now a third of mm. our ECMO runs. So we, we do about 69 Uh, ECMO runs a year. The vast majority of those are VA ECMO um, and about a third of those are um, ECMO CPR. So it is something we deal with, certainly if not on a daily basis, uh, certainly we'll have a number of patients uh, per week um, on ECMO. And uh, they all provide us with unique challenges. I think we learn a lot as we go along about patient selection, um, about how to wean uh, patients uh, appropriately, and uh, I think you know it's it's obviously an, an increasing area uh, for us. 
Yeah, and let's assume for a second that uh, for this particular episode, man, it's, it's nice to have you on the line because uh, having such a world expert and uh, at a at a facility like the Alfred is is really a privilege for us. Um, I think we're going to try to focus today, uh, if it's okay with you, on the daily management and then weaning of a simple, and I say simple with quotation marks in the air, a simple VA ECMO case. Stay off of the VV for now. Sure. We'll yeah. stick with the VA and maybe even an eCPR case. So maybe um, maybe you can give us a, a, a case of from your cheer trial, uh, a classic maybe STEMI arrest kind of a thing. Uh, sure. Um, so we could consider the case of somebody who's you know a fifty five year old man who's come in with a STEMI. He's arrested um, pre hospital. He's been brought in on uh, mechanical uh, CPR, um, mm-hmm. and he gets ECMO in the emergency department. Um, so we'll typically cannulate with small cannulas, um, you know, 15 French and 19 French. Um, ideally, he'll go straight to the cath lab. Um, and ideally, that time frame is, you know, within an hour um, of the initial arrest. That's the optimal uh, time frame, we believe. Yeah. And so you've just gotten them on ECMO. You bring them to the cath lab and you open up a, um, let's just say an LED lesion and they are off and running and they go off to your intensive care unit. Uh, and that's when you are now getting involved. Yes. Absolutely. And, um, well, we'll probably get involved at the cannulation phase, but yeah, we'll, we'll see mm. the patient through the cath lab and back down to the, um, to the intensive care unit. And if you like, it's at this stage, I think, after the, um, after the lesion's been stented, uh, the heart's reperfused, uh, the patient is reperfused. Um, this is when all hell breaks loose, I think. <laughs> Oftentimes <laughs> the patient becomes quite unstable uh, in this setting. It's not uncommon. Um, and particularly they often have a very um, marked and profound SERS response that we see in the first 24 hours. So um, they may be quite uh, vasoplegic, um, they may be bleeding um, from the effects of mm-hmm. the medications they've had in the cath lab, etc., from the effects of the CPR. Um, so there often are many challenges in just maintaining that patient and making sure they're stable in that first uh, 24 hours. Sure, sure. Uh, let's, you know, God, I'd love to bring you back and have a discussion about just that that section, that 24 hours and how to manage the individual permutations of yeah. pathology that's occurring. That would be a fascinating episode. For now, we got to stick with the, what we're doing here. So let's go to right to this. Uh, let's say you get past that initial phase. You get past the vasoplegic phase and the SERS phase, and you're now um, at some time out. When do you, when do you think you are uh, into a more stable situation in this patient? Is there a certain time frame that we sort of all give a sigh of relief? Uh, look, I, I think it's not necessarily. It, it is often in the first forty-eight hours, but I guess we look at the um, the patient's sort of clinical things that we're monitoring, and in particular the return mm-hmm. of pulsatility. So typically, the ECMO CPR patient will have absent or very poor pulsatility, so a very poor uh, a small pulse difference on their arterial trace. Um, they may have very mm-hmm. small uh, or very low end tidal CO two. So. Once we start seeing that the end tidal CO2 is coming up, the pulsatility is improved, hopefully those vasopressors are weaning, um, then that's the time. So it's not at a particular time interval, but once those things start to occur, um, that's the time when we start to think about, um, you know, that the patient is becoming more stable, the heart is recovering from the stunning injury, um, and maybe now is the time to start thinking about the weaning process. Mm. 
So, Deirdre, I mean, we've most of our patients are in that category where we get this, you know, a massive response like an hour or two after they they come back, they get out on ECMO and they become hypotensive, and we start having to throw all these pressors at them. Yeah. But I think that there are a subset of people who come back and their EF is pretty normal and they look pretty good. Our question is, do you? Do you wean people? Do you take people off ECMO within the first 12 hours, within the first 24 hours of a cardiac arrest, knowing that the downsides of having a patient on ECMO are not insignificant? Um, I, I think it would be very rare for us to take somebody off within 24 hours. Um, it does, of course, depend on how quickly the patient recovers and some causes of arrest. Um, for instance, you know, take a patient who's just had a massive PE, for instance. Um, once that patient is supported and they have that dealt with um, either via thrombolysis or uh, other me- methods, they tend to recover very quickly. But I think we're still in that first 24-hour period dealing with the sort of reperfusion injury and the effect of that. So it would be quite, I can't think of a patient where we've weaned them so quickly. Um, and, sure. you know, a, a lot of, I think perhaps a lot of the complications with ECMO support may arise at that initial cannulation phase. So once they're on support, um, continuing them on support for an extra 24 hours, say, may not add an extra complication burden would be my sure. opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we'd probably, well, to our limited knowledge, agree with that. Uh, so let's just say now you get them past that, that initial 24 hour period and they're doing well. And, um, why don't you walk us through sort of the daily round? So you come in the morning, they've had their, uh, arrest 24 hours earlier and it's, uh, you know, they're doing well. They have a reasonable blood pressure. They're coming down on pressors or maybe even, you know, minimal pressors and their surge response seems to be very, uh, minimal. Uh, what would be your sort of daily round and your thought process in me- walking your way through uh, the, the process of getting them off a of pump? Okay. So I think with any ECMO patient, as soon as they go on ECMO, I start thinking about how are we going to wean this patient? Because I guess VA ECMO is a limited support. So right from that time of cannulation, you're thinking, well, what's the weaning strategy going to be? And even if the patient is not yet ready to wean, I think thinking about it and thinking about how they're likely to go, you know, taking into account the cause of the arrest, their sort of temporal course, whether the heart looks like it's recovering or not. So those sort of things I think are important to consider right from the start. Because, for instance, that for a patient who's not likely to wean or who's going to require further mechanical support, um, there's a lot of information that needs to be gathered, a lot of decisions that need to be made, and um, the sooner those uh, that, that sort of process can start, the better. With this particular patient, as, as we see them in the ICU in the morning, you know, assessing all those things, blood pressure supports, amount of pulsatility, um, you know, how the patient is recovering, you know, if things are looking good, we'd probably decide to do a weaning study. Um, so this uh, weaning study would be a formal um, hemodynamic study, uh, including ECHO. And in our practice, that's Usually a transthoracic echo, but it depends if, if the patient has no transthoracic windows, we'll do a TOE or TEE, uh-huh. as you say over there. <laughs> uh-huh. Sure, sure, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll plan to do this formalized weaning study. Okay, when you do that, uh, can, you, can you walk us through what the numbers are you're looking for? What kind of values are you looking for as a uh, hopeful? Absolutely. Uh, 
Absolutely. So um, we, we do a, we have a sort of a, a set process, and I think that's very important because mm. it's important between studies that if two different practitioners do a weaning study, they can be comparable. You know, we we do the same thing every time, if you like. So what we'll do is we'll do a um, we'll ensure really first that the patient does have pulsatility, that the patient sure. is on some inotropic support because it's unfair to expect the heart to wean without any support, I think, yeah. even though they may not need a lot while they're on the ECMO. So typically they'll be on low le- levels of inotropes, ideally not on high levels of vasopressor as well. We'll make sure their fluid balance is optimized. Um, and then um, the weaning study consists of sequentially turning down the pump speed um, and assessing the hemodynamic variables. So we'll be looking at the mean arterial pressure, the pulmonary artery pressure, if we happen to have a swan, not, not so much these days. Um, what's happening with the oxygenation? Um, and, uh, you know, what, what sort of, uh, what sort of uh, fresh gas flow and other things the patient's on at the time. So at, at each level of support. So typically when we do it, I'll, I'll turn the ECMO pump down to the next full uh, liter. It's the simplest way, I think, but there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, so say the patient's on four and a half liters of support. Sure. I'll turn them down to four liters, then down to three liters, then down to two liters, and then at a minimum of one liter. Um, and at each of those levels, we'll wait at least five minutes uh, for the hemodynamics to settle down. The patient often, you can see that they'll adapt to the new level of support. Um, and then we'll do a, an echo study at each of those levels of support as well. So we're looking at both what happens with the hemodynamics, the blood pressure, the CVP, um, other things, the oxygenation, um, and also uh, in terms of the echo study, we look at both qualitative and quantitative markers um, of left and right heart function. So Deirdre, this is just like a a fascinating part of this that I do not know that much about. I'm, I'm very interested in your experience here. So when you're, when you're weaning down the flow and you're doing echoes at that same time, yep. are you seeing improvement of the EF as mm. you're going down on the, the flows for the ECMO cannulas? Yeah, well, that's exactly what you want to see. So um, if you consider a patient who's on four and a half liters of support, their heart's not being volume loaded, essentially. So it's very right. hard to assess their EF when they're right. on, on full support or on at least, you know, a large amount of ECMO support. So as you volume load the ventricles, uh, what you should see is a response to that. So ideally, um, what I'm interested in seeing is not just an improve, you know, so a stepwise improvement, both in qualitative, um, you know, function, um, EF, if you can measure it. It's not always possible in an ICU patient to get a good sort of measure of um, EF qualitative or quantitatively, but also um, an improvement in stroke volume, and that's the key, I think. So a, a, a heart that can improve its output with uh, f- with volume loading, which is essentially what you're doing as you're decreasing the ECMO flow, um, th- they're the sort of markers that um, are very encouraging that the patient will cope without the ECMO. Okay, so I, there's like a hundred different questions I could ask you right here, <laughs> but there's one more that I kind of just want to focus on. So as you're weaning down ECMO, you're mm-hmm. also having this decision as far as their vasoplegia. Are you going to go up on their peripheral squeeze? Oh, uh, sure. You, okay. So, so how do you how do you kind of decide on whether because you're having maybe a good EF, but you still have the vasoplegia? 
and that flow, how do you make that decision as far as the optimal flow rate for a given patient? So I think that as you turn down, if your patient, if the patient is adequately volume loaded to start with, that they're uvolemic um, and they're on pressors, as you turn down the ECMO flow, I, I, I think going up on pressors is a very um, worrying sign. So if the patient becomes hypotensive, that makes me worried the patient's not ready to come off because they shouldn't get more vasoplegic as you turn down the ECMO. So I think if the if the blood pressure drops, um, if the blood pressure drops, that is concerning that the patient may not yet be ready to come off. So I think that to me that's one of the most um, uh, important facets of the of the exam. Now it can be difficult because occasionally you may have given a little bit of extra sedation as you've come down. So you know there may be a few other things going on. Um, perhaps they're you know if they're having a toe, they're they've been sedated for that, etc. So you have to take those factors into account. But I think a, a precipitous drop in mean arterial pressure or a requirement for increase in vasopressors is a concern. Uh, as you're as you're weaning ECMO, and a toe is a trans uh, esophageal echo a, a that's t- spelled a incorrectly. T. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very good. So let me ask you then: Do you get situations where? Oh, let, jumping back, um, you said you couldn't get an. You, it's difficult to ascertain a actual number of uh, determining the quantitative EF. But is there a rough? Uh, number that you guys are shooting for? Is it a 25%, 30%, 40%? What's the EF that is considered acceptable? Oh, oh sure. Um, I think, and, and sometimes clinicians' eyeballs are better than um, <laughs> you know, quantitative measures in a, in a patient okay. where you can't fully put them on their side, etc. So we always will look at the EF and either estimate it or, or measure it. But look, I, I think as a rule of thumb, you, you'd want an EF of greater than 20%, 20 to 25% at, at least. Okay, fair yeah. enough. And do you ever see patients who have, um, in this situation, have an EF that recovers, but for whatever reason they're not recovering pul- from a pulmonary perspective, where they may be in, um, it'd be a, still a heart patient, but for whatever reason they're in ARDS or they have, uh, they, you can't wean them off from a, I guess my, my end question here is, are you ever going to be transitioning from VA to VV ECMO in these patients? Uh, yes, absolutely. It's not very common, um, but it does happen. And you can you can imagine a patient who's who's had a, an arrest, who's aspirated, and gets an aspiration pneumonitis. The heart recovers quickly from the sort of stunning injury from the arrest, if you like, um, and the lungs get worse. And that's actually quite a difficult situation because it's very difficult to wean the. Um, uh, as you turn the pump down to try and wean the ECMO support, um, the uh, you can't really assess because the oxygenation is dependent. And obviously, if the oxygenation gets worse, you can't assess the heart proper, properly. Mm. So it's a difficult decision to decide uh, if the patient is ready to come off VA. Having said that, if they're on VA ECMO support and they've got uh, recovery of the heart and a lung injury, there is, there will be problems with severe differential hypoxemia. So uh, uh, it is Im- imperative to get the patient off VA support um, at that point because it's not going to be an optimal support for them. So it doesn't happen often, but we do uh, not in. We do occasionally wean patients from VA to VV. 
And then physically, how are you going to do that? So you're, let's just say you have a right femoral artery 17 and a left femoral vein 19 and it's day three and you decide that you need to go on to VV. Are you, what, what is the way that you guys do that? Are you going to put in a new um, venous line? Are you going to put in an Avalon uh, bilumen? What are you guys going to do in that case? Uh, generally, generally, we'll just put in a new venous line. So either a, a neckline or um, a, a femoral venous line on the side of the arterial cannulation, more likely a neckline. Um, and there are, I should say, there are other ways to manage that situation as well. So um, you can decide to go to, um, obviously, central VA gets o- overcomes the, the problem of differential hypoxemia, but it's obviously very sure, invasive. Sure. Um, but one thing we've done in, in that situation where the heart's recovering a bit, but hard to evaluate and the lungs are bad, is uh, put um, in a subclavian artery um, return. So you get the sort of benefits, if you like, of the anti-grade flow of central um, VA uh, without the sort of problems of having to have a sternotomy, etc. So that's quite a nice technique. Yeah, and for listeners out there, the central, which she's referring to, right, uh, Deidre, the central VA is can be done through a thoracotomy or sternotomy, uh, a surgical yes. impl- implantation, yeah. as opposed to the percutaneous that we're doing usually in the ER or the ICU. Yeah. Um, and I think to clarify here, Deidre, you're talking about, when you talk about differential hypoxemia, you're talking about what is the oxygen that's going into the coronary arteries? Is that what you're sort of trying to assess here? Yeah, absolutely. Because I guess uh, VA ECMO, peripheral VA ECMO will, um, will preferentially oxygenate the lower half of the body. So right. um, if the heart is pumping, uh, wh- and so if the heart's not pumping at all, the patient's entire sort of, you know, oxygenation will be reflect, will be that of the ECMO circuit. So yeah. I guess um, we, when I see a patient on VA ECMO, they're hi- the higher their PAO2, sometimes it, it's a marker that the heart is worse, if you like. <laughs> As the heart starts to recover, the PAO2 drops. If the lungs are oxygenating adequately, it's not an issue. But if you do have somebody with, um, you know, pulmonary edema or AORDS or aspiration pneumonitis or whatever, um, then that differential hypoxemia can be quite severe. So what the ECMO circuit, you know, what the up, what's reflected in the uh, carotids, uh, and we always have an, ox- you know, our oxygen monitor on the right hand for that reason, what, what's reflected in the upper body and importantly in the coronary arteries will be what's coming through the lungs. Yeah, that's a fascinating part of ECMO physiology. Mm. I think we, we, we don't talk about enough. So because as you're weaning down the VA ECMO on just any patient, you have to realize what kind of oxygen is coming through the lung and is going right past that aortic valve, going into the coronaries or possibly into the carotids, maybe a very different than what's coming out of your ECMO circuit down below. Correct, yeah. Okay, so moving forward then, let's say you are now in the process of weaning and you get to the point where you're slowly turning down the RPMs and you get them down to a liter. Or what, what is your bottom level that you keep folks at and how long do you keep them at uh, before you decide to go ahead and just pull the pump altogether? Oh, sure. I mean, that's a very good question. I suppose you always want to maintain antigrade flow in the circuit. So uh, uh, generally, you know, 1,500 revs um, mm. at a minimum. Um, and that would generally sort of correspond to about um, a liter of support. We do worry about clotting within the circuit, um, you know, at, at those low levels of support. So generally, when um, when we go down to one liter, we uh, will look at the echo, we'll assess the hemodynamics, and we'll generally just stay at that lower level for about five minutes. 
five, ten minutes at most, um, be- because of the concern about, you know, clot formation, etc. And I should have said at the start, um, we always ensure that the patient's adequately anticoagulated at the start of the um, ECMO weaning study. Okay, and then sort of just a correlate question on this. So when you're down at those low flows, one of the things that we actually just got off the phone with someone else with a complication with this, as far as the perfusion of the lower extremity, do you guys have thoughts about clotting or even malperfusion when you're weaning them off at that point? With, of course, a uh, backflow cannula in, I guess the, I think what Zach, sorry to interrupt, but what Zach was probably asking is when you start to wean down, do you start to have troubles with anterograde flow down that ipsilateral leg? Um, I haven't, I haven't seen that problem, but we do, we do sort of stay at that lower, that lowest level for a relatively short time. Uh, so I, I haven't encountered that issue before, um, with our, with our, um, backflow cannulas, if you like. Um, so there'll still be some perfusion down that leg, I guess. Um, but yeah, so, I think that the key is to not stay at the lowest level for too long. So the time from when you're ready, you're like, we're done. We're ready to pull these. We're ready to take them off ECMO. The time from when you stop the machine till the cannulas are pulled, how much time is that? So once we've done a, a weaning study, when when in our institution, I suppose the ECMO removal is done by the surgeons. So we do an arterial repair, and I don't think that's um, th- that's not the case everywhere. Some some places remove ECMO cannulas and and press and, you know, use fem stops, etc. But we routinely do an arterial repair. Um, so once we've decided that the patient is ready and that they should be uh, suitable to come off ECMO, we'll arrange theatre time. And generally, once we have made that decision that the patient's suitable to come off, we want to make sure they do come off as soon as possible. Um, because, you know, you definitely don't want a patient who could be off support then developing a complication of support. So, um, uh, and generally, the logistics of that usually mean that the patient will come off within the next 24 hours. I see. So you're coordinating with your CT surgeons well in advance saying, look, this guy looks like he's going the right direction. We might be able to pull this tomorrow morning, that kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. And they'll often even come along and watch the weaning study or come and see the patient around the time. So it's often a coordinated um, a team approach. So also our heart failure physicians, if the patient or the cardiologists who are looking after um, the patients will also be there uh, for that weaning study and it'll be a group decision about what's the next step. Got it. Okay, next, you now have a patient who has been on ECMO for uh, two, three, four, five days. Uh, we're talking VA ECMO, and their heart is not recovering. Uh, where Can you walk us through your thought process versus, uh, where you transition from a bridge to recovery to a bridge to VAD? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. So I, I think um, this is a really important group to recognize early on, um, and you know, it, it may be that the patient has chronic heart failure and they've had an acute on chronic deterioration. Mm. It's often obvious from the history or it may be apparent from the history, but occasionally, you know, patients present with acute heart failure um, and it turns out, you know, they've been compensating for some time and it turns out they've got a severe dilated mm. cardiomyopathy. They're clearly not going to come off ECMO. So for those patients, I think identifying that the patient is in a group that's likely to need Further mechanical support is really important early on, and um, you know even before weaning is is, is would be thought about otherwise, um, because as I've said, that particular group there's a lot of workup that needs to happen 
to uh, work yeah. out if they are suitable for um, long-term mechanical support, have they got contraindications. In Australia, where I work, um, we don't have a destination VAD th- uh, program, so essentially a long-term VAD will only put, be put in in a candidate who would be considered potential as bridge to transplant. So if they've got a, a definite contraindication for transplant, for instance, that would um, knock them out. So um, identifying that group of patients, there's a lot of workup that has to happen to make sure they're going to be suitable for the VAD um, and suitable for that uh, form of support. And um, the sooner that can start, I think the better. So dumbing things down for us, <laughs> uh, ER docs, sorry. Uh, is there a, is there a rough um, I don't know time frame? Is there a is there a certain time point where their EF doesn't reach a certain amount at this day that is considered the, the drop dead time where they're either VAD or we're going to uh, start start to withdraw? Oh sure. Look I, I, to give you an idea. I suppose if you look at ELSO uh, registry data, the median time of support on VA ECMO is about five days. Uh, we looked at our median time um, on VA ECMO at the Alfred, and it's about seven days, so it's a little bit longer than that. But, but generally, you're talking about support that will, you know, last for at most about two weeks for most patients, and that's really because over time with peripheral VA cannulation. Um, there starts to be problems at the arterial cannula site. The patient, if they're awake, won't be able to keep their legs still. They start to get bleeding at the sites, etc. infection, other issues from being in bed. So I think, you know, they need to either be ready to come off or they need to be bridged to another form of support generally, sure. realistically within two weeks at the longest. So that's sort of where the time starts ticking as soon as they go on and you're thinking about what the underlying process is. It may be clear from the outset that this is a patient who's not likely to wean off, um, in which case just as, you know, uh, going ahead and organizing and arranging for that, that VAD is the most appropriate thing. So this may be a patient who already has chronic heart failure, who's had a deterioration. Um, and interestingly, within our VAD program, we have looked at uh, patients who've been bridged to a VAD, sort of a bridge to a bridge, if you like, with ECMO support. And those patients, even though they have presented, you know, very unwell at the time they would have otherwise, if they had had the VAD implanted at the time they went on ECMO, um, those patients actually do very well with their VAD support because the ECMO gives them a period of stability and organ support before they go on to have the VAD. So um, they, they do have very good outcomes, we find. Yeah. So let me ask you a quick corollary question. That's kind of a technical one. You guys are, I think you guys are primarily using cardio help. If I'm not incorrect, I don't know if you use Rotaflow or other devices. Um, uh, but we the use question, both. Yeah, we, we use do. both. Yeah. Let's just say you throw somebody onto a cardio help who you presume you, you assume that they're going to have they're going to be on pump for two or three days, maybe five days. It's a STEMI patient, the one we talked about at the beginning of the show, and it turns out that they're actually on for two or three weeks or what yep. have you, and you now have a problem, let's just say, with the oxygenator. And the technical question is with the cardio help, the oxygenator and the pump are attached. Mm-hmm. So you're then going to have to change out that entire circuit. Correct, right? yeah. Is that a technically challenging thing to do, or is it easier if you have them separate, like in Rotoflow, where you can just carve out the oxygenator and put in a new oxygenator? Oh, to be honest, if we have a problem with the Rotoflow, um, we will change out the whole circuit anyway. It's, it's ah, technically easier okay. to change the whole circuit, I think. It's quicker. Uh, and certainly that's, well, that's been the approach that we've, um, we've had. Uh, so, uh, we try and do it a little bit like a pit stop. <laughs> so partic- particularly yeah. for those patients who are really dependent on support, 
you know, we'll have two people on each, um, on each connection, um, have the real other fast. machine up and running real fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we like to, we like to, you know, um, have little races and, you know, try and get the time down as much as possible. Um, but uh, yeah, okay, whether it's cardio help or road flow, we will change out the whole circuit. So Deirdre, um, one last thing, the, one of the big sort of differences that we see, maybe our perception, it may not be true. I noticed that you mentioned four and a half liters of flow, but, but one of the, one of our perceptions and has really changed my thinking and made me question a lot of the stuff that we've already done is that at the Alfred, you are using smaller cannulas and you're shooting for lower flows, like two and a half to maybe three liters of flow on your eCPR patients. Uh, would you say that's true or... Um, we do we do use smaller cannulas just so that we can get them in uh, quickly, um, but I guess our ECPR program is evolving over time. The more we do, the more we learn about it. I think, and um, I would say that for many of the patients, three liters is just not going to be enough. But equally, with small cannulas, you can still get you know, at least in that initial period when they're very vasoplegic. So we do try and uh, occasionally turn it up and get, you know, a little bit more. It depends on the individual patient, I guess. Yeah, I guess, I guess my, my paradigm shift with all this, my question with all this has been, are we actually hurting them by putting them on four and a half liters of flow at the get-go and not allowing that heart to work, not allowing that the, any of the flow to go through the heart? Um, and so kind of looking at the Alfred and saying, are they doing something better in creating less afterload on that very sick heart that just had a cardiac arrest? That's the question that I still have. Yeah, the afterload question is really interesting, and we see this all the time. You know, with with hearts that are very sick, say the more chronic hearts as well. As soon as you put them on ECMO, they stop working altogether. Because if you think about it, yeah. it's a really bad support for heart failure. You're increasing afterload. Um, you're making it much harder for the heart to pump. So we do make a lot of effort to try and um, uh, reduce the afterload where we can and um, maintain pulsatility. So we'll always use inotropes to maintain pulsatility because I think if the aortic valve is not opening and if the heart's not uh, contracting, there can be significant uh, uh, thromboembolic complications and thrombus formation within the heart. Um, but with some patients, it's their heart is so sick that no matter how much inotrope you've got them on, that's not going to happen. Um, and those patients will require full support. So I guess it is a little bit about you know, supporting the patient that, that you've got and uh, changing as, as things change. It's often a dynamic situation too, I suppose. So the idea sort of in the trauma literature, we talk about like permissive hypotension or, you know, something like that. If you, let's put you to the test here, Deirdre, <laughs> if you have a patient whose aortic valve is not opening at four and a half liters of flow, but is opening at three and a half liters of flow, but you have to put them on pressor support, which do you choose? Oh, definitely the three and a half liters. I think if the aortic valve is not opening, um, you're running a lot of risks for that patient. And if there are, uh, in, in particular, even if there's the tiniest bit of aortic incompetence in that setting, um, you'll have, uh, you can get a very distended uh, left ventricle and pulmonary edema. So I think it's imperative to maintain um, pulsatility wherever possible, maintain that aortic valve opening. So I'd always take the three liters and the pressors. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't think of a better way to close this out than that. But, th- but congratulations, by the way, for saving your patient right there. That was really well done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> listen, Deidre, we cannot thank you enough. Deidre Murphy, the 
uh, deputy director of the ICU and head of cardiothoracic ICU at the Alfred and ECMO goddess has decided to come <laughs> and join us today on the ED ECMO podcast. We cannot thank you enough, Deidre. Thanks. Okay. Thanks very much, guys. Gosh, on behalf of the ED ECMO podcast, on behalf of Deidre Murphy and uh, Zach Shiner, I am Joe Belezzo, and this is the ED ECMO podcast, and we are signing out. out.